Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Irina. And this is our review of Moonstruck, starring Cher, Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, Vincent Gardenia, and Danny Aiello. Directed by Norman Jewison, released in 1988 on a $15 million budget, grossed over $80 million at the box office, and garnered six Oscar nominations with wins for Best Supporting Actress, Dukakis, Best Screenplay, and Best Actress for Cher. And I remember that uh, when that <laughs> happened. Now, Irina, you and Brian brought this up on the September Session show, and you you both said it was one of your favorite soundtracks, but you also said this was one of your favorite movies of all time, right? Oh, 100%. One of my favorite movies. And if I have to go back in time to when I first heard you mention this on the show, it may not have been you, but you and Ron did an, a kind of a should have won the Oscars lineup last year. And Moonstruck was mentioned and Ron was like, well, kind of, I kind of have a soft spot for this one, but such and such should have won. And I kind of laughed. And that was where you and I kind of developed our, uh, our banter back and forth and talking about doing a podcast together. Yeah. So this one's been on the docket for a while and pretty much everybody here at, at Filmstrip one time or another has been able to do like their favorite pet thing, you know, at some point. So it was your turn. And, and I was down <laughs> for that because I had seen this movie once. But I had not watched it, Irina, in at least 25 years, if not longer. Um, I remember when it came out, I didn't watch it in 1988, obviously, because I was 12 and this was not something I would have watched <laughs> at the time. And I think I watched it like in college or something because it was on television or the free HBO, whatever the campus cable got. And I thought, oh, you know what? I need to watch that because it won Oscars and, you know, Cher and yada, yada. And I watched it and I was like, ah, oh, Cher before her face became a piece of plastic and, and Nicolas Cage before he completely <laughs> lost his mind. And I remember thinking that at the time and rewatching it this time. I'm like, oh no, he's in his full cage and is here. It's just in small doses. Like he's still like the performer that you know and love if you love Nicolas Cage is, is very much here. But I didn't remember anything about this one. And this is the kind of movie that honestly just doesn't get made anymore. Like adult dramas nowadays, this is on Hallmark and Lifetime and stuff like that. And that's no disparagement to them. That's just where these things happen now. We don't make these kind of movies anymore in Hollywood. 100%. And I joke with some of my friends that, oh, they're going to sit and watch Hallmark all, all December for the, the Hallmark holiday movies. And, and, you know, I go back to this one and how fabulously it portrays this type of dynamic, um, not only family dynamic, but the romantic aspect of life. It's very real. Yeah, there is a very much a lived in quality to this. And we feel like we're just thrown into these people's lives and we just get a couple of weeks with them. But you learn so much about them. And you know, forgive me for this, but I'm watching this this time and I'm going, man, Nia Vardalos like totally ripped a lot of this off for my big fat Greek wedding. I know like some of that's based on her <laughs> real life or whatever. I'm like, and a lot of the comedy beats here are very much stuff that I, I felt like I was watching again years later. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking, oh, that's really cute. You know, again, that's a movie that doesn't get made much nowadays. Now it's a TV show or something. I think that one even turned into a TV show, but I felt like that. The thing that got me here is I didn't realize Norman Jewison had directed this. I didn't pay any attention to that at the time, but like Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, Thomas Crown Affair, the original one, the good one. Uh, I mean, the, 
not the kind of stuff that this guy does. And then Agnes of God, which is a very dark and deep drama. You talk about like a play that's turned into a melodrama on screen. I mean, that that movie is. is oh, gosh, we won't even touch Agnes of God. I did it once as a stage play and I literally wanted to die every time I did it. So because I was sitting there thinking and of all of the different movies I've seen and the plots that kind of have echoed little plays on this. Um, even right down to the wedding singer, you have a woman who is about yeah. to get married. She has a fiance, falls in love with another man. I mean, how is it different? But before I get too into that, maybe you want me to set up a plot summary so we can kind of dive into this. Yeah, I do think this is one that you do need to summarize because I think people are aware of this movie, but maybe they're like me and they haven't seen it in a long time or maybe they've never seen it. So do tell us what the plot of Moonstruck is and then we can talk about like all the other things that reminds us of as we kind of walk through it. All right. Well, here we go. Loretta Casserini Clark is an Italian-American widow convinced her first marriage was doomed because she didn't follow tradition. Her doting boyfriend, Johnny, is in love with her and proposes before he leaves for Sicily to care for an ailing mother. Loretta accepts but finds herself in a pickle when she has a fling and subsequent strong feelings for Johnny's younger brother, Ronnie. As she falls deeper for Ronnie, Loretta learns she is not the only member of the family with a secret romance. Her father is also dating another woman. Loretta and Ronnie learn this while attending an opera, and she confronts her father, who breaks off the affair and reconciles with his wife, the ever-loving Rose. Johnny returns from his mother's miraculous recovery and confides in Rose, who asks him why men chase women, both agreeing that men fear death ultimately. Johnny, now superstitious that marrying will cause his mother's death, breaks off the engagement. Ronnie seizes the moment, borrows the engagement ring, and proposes to Loretta, who accepts. The family toasts the new couple as credits roll. Yeah, I think that's the neat thing about this movie, is that it's really very simple. Like, again, this takes place over maybe about a week in time, but we're just bounced between three or four big set pieces, and I dare say this feels so much like a stage play turned into a movie. And I know it's not, but knowing Jewison has done some of those adaptations and then knowing a lot of the cast, especially like Vincent Gardenia is very much involved in theater. Olympia Dukakis was as well. Um, I don't know so much share and at, you know, Nicholas Cage was quote unquote, but I mean, really the, a lot of the cast, Danny Aiello has done a lot of Broadway, you know, it, I feel like we were watching a play turn into a movie and done in a good way. I don't mean that as a disparaging way, but I think that's the thing that, that really hooked me into this was how simple this really is. I mean, it's a, it's an age old story. You fall in love with one guy, but then all of a sudden, Ooh, I'm in love with his brother. Right. And how do I deal with that and what that looks like? And then the hilarity of how all of those people act is it's so neat because I feel like this movie takes place between like three blocks in Brooklyn or something. Oh, and it does. It takes it takes place within a really small community. We have from the beginning of the movie, Cher is is she's sitting in a funeral home doing the books for the mortician that works there, and we, you know, we're very quickly introduced to um, her no BS attitude. Um, you know, she looks at the guy who's walking around talking about what a genius he is, and she says, "Well, what if you're such a genius? Why you got butter on your tie?" Yeah. You know, it, and 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 we have her. There, there's no filter to her. She's going to say exactly what she wants to say. But you know, she's involved with being an accountant for all these different businesses, but most of them are family members. So it is a really mm -hmm. small community. So there's no there's no secret keeping here. 
It reminded me very much of where my wife grew up in rural Alabama, but everybody on that road, you know, from one end of Phillips Road to the other is in somewhere or another related to one another. And even still, like they all kind of keep up with each other and people work between different, you know, places and stuff. And she'll, if I would go down there, she'll tell me like, oh yeah, my uncle, you know, so-and-so used to own that place and that used to be this station and that, you know, and it's neat to see. And that's very much like part of Brooklyn Heights and, and New York. And I think it's still part of, of being a New Yorker. What I think is neat about Cher here is up until I guess maybe I was in college and I sort of learned something more about her. I just thought she was from New York, you know, cause she just always came <laughs> off with that kind of brassy, cynical, but sweet New Yorker thing. I mean, you did a great you know, version of her accent in this and, and that's what I wrote down about her. I was like, she's really sweet, but she's also kind of cynical. She's a little jaded. And what I think is neat about this is you're seeing a woman in her late thirties, you know, as the lead in a movie, that is just not something anymore you see nowadays. Like everybody's 27 and their career is starting, right? Or they're already like, you know, a millionaire or something like that. Especially all those Lifetime movies. They all seem to be that way. And, <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm always like amazed. Like, what do you people do for a living? And what I like about this is that she has like a very real job. She has very real people that she's responsible for. She has the restaurant that kind of the community seems to all eat at, the Italian restaurant, you know. And everybody knows everybody. And she seems very comfortable in that. It's, a lot of times these movies it's always like i'm looking for something that's not in my life and loretta is very content with kind of what her life is oh she, she is she's comfortable uh, is she happy i don't know whether i'll say she's happy but she's comfortable and um th that's one of the things that is slightly amusing about uh her character's relationship with uh danny aiello's character johnny is johnny's just kind of this guy that's looking for you know, he, he's got this gift in front of him with Cher that nobody really, uh, he, nobody's really noticed because she's kept herself, uh, to herself. So she's, we find out she's 36. She, um, had a husband who died in a car accident and Johnny has been kind of her go-to guy. He was friends with her former husband. He's just the guy that's been there for her for the, I think it's seven to five to seven years that her husband has been gone. So, you know, the progression of their relationship, you know, it makes sense. Do we like it? Ah, I don't know whether I liked it or not, but it made sense. I thought it was really cute because Johnny, as we'll learn, his family owns the local bakery and he's a part of all of that. Like at first I was like, what is this guy like a mobster? You know, what is his deal? And I think that's just because I'm projecting on Danny Aiello because I've seen him play those so many different times and things. And everybody around there seems to be, uh, you know, connected to one of those kind of movies at one time or another. But, I, I'm watching him, but I, I like how he's just a, he's a real sort of insecure, um, kind of, I don't know, boy in a 50 year old man's, you know, body. I mean, he's very much, uh, a nervous cat and he doesn't really know how to operate. And I think he realizes he's got a real gem in Loretta. And that's the thing about Cher in this movie is the only thing she really does is she darkens her hair and kind of poofs it out a little bit and it like totally transforms her look. She goes from looking kind of like, eh, you know, okay, girl next door to like, you know, goddess because Cher's like really tall and got that whole Cherokee Indian thing going and, you know, that, that the real facial features and all that. And it's very pretty. And my wife and I both commented on that, like, man, the hair job just like totally changed her whole look in this movie. And it's funny how to watch her kind of play herself down because through the 70s, like Cher was, you know, this, oh, you know, hippie goddess woman or whatever. And now she's trying to play sort of this demure bookkeeper. And that's not her at all, though, because she, again, is so has so much agency on her own. And let's talk about it. In 1988, 
1998, that was not something you saw a lot of. And that's a neat twist in this movie to go back and revisit something that's this old or that it has got so many years on it as this and see that she really is driving her own story here. Johnny proposes, but at first she's like, wait a minute, if you're going to propose to me, you got to get down on a knee. You got to do it a certain way. Like she's, she has standards that she's not going to let this go through. And then when he does it, she's like, okay, yes. So one of the wonderful things that I think most people miss unless you go back and you kind of do the research on this movie is that so Shara's 42 when she did this movie. And one of the things that she'll tell people is her favorite part of this movie was not being dolled up. She liked playing Loretta number one. And I think I'm going to kind of refer to refer to her as two different characters, Loretta number one before the hair job and Loretta number two after the makeover. Um, She felt that it actually like made her work a little bit as an actress and kind of made her put a little bit more into her performance because it wasn't classic share. She knew she was pretty. She knew what she looked like dolled up, but here she was playing this, you know, girl next door kind of character. And maybe we don't think of her as girl next door, but this is the Italian girl next door. And Johnny, yeah, he's his neurotic, you know, scalp scratching self when he gets nervous. And she's just <laughs> like, well, what are you doing? Um, and and I do agree with you that it's great. She takes this assertive role when he goes to propose to her at the Grand Ticino. He gets, he, you know, sa- says out of nowhere, they're looking at the dessert cart and he says, will you marry me? And she tells the the waiter, take the cart away. She's, and she's got a, she has that moment where she has to say, okay, is this guy, is, is he really serious? What's going on here? <laughs> and she says, well, you know, you propose to a woman, you get down on one knee. That's what you do. And you've got to have a ring. So he takes off his pinky ring, which tells you he hasn't really thought this through at all. Like there's been no thought process. He isn't prepared. Um, but he gets down on one knee with, with arguments as to, you know, I'm going to ruin my pants. And she says, well, it came with two pair of pants. I bought it with you. Get down on one knee. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we get this um, very assertive character from her, which is great. Then he goes off to see his mother in Sicily, which leads to one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie at the airport. Not just like she's taking care of him, like she's mothering him. You know, here's some, I got you some gum and uh, cough drops to make sure that, you know, you can equalize the pressure in your ears when you're flying. But then he gets on the plane and there's this old woman that he meets. And you remember this old lady that she meets, like as she's watching the plane get ready to take off, right? Oh, absolutely. Th- this one was hilarious. Oh my God. Yeah. She was so hilarious. And she looks at Sharon and says, do you have, do you have somebody on that plane? She says, yeah. She says, I put a curse on that plane because you know, there's this whole, and if you didn't grow up in Italian family, which I did, um, so this whole movie is literally my family, 100%. Like you went to a, you know, some sort of gathering and everybody was there. You didn't know what anybody was saying. They were all speaking Italian. They were all yelling at each other. And then somebody would speak in English and say, hey, don't trust that person. Don't do it. <laughs> don't listen to anything they got to say. And this this old woman, you know, she gets right down to the, my sister's on that plane and I put a curse on her. And then she and then shares the automatic reaction is, eh, I don't believe in curses. And the old woman says, neither do I. And then we go on to this. <laughs> we have this whole moment where we've set up this idea of, oh, there's a cursed relationship here. <laughs> it, it sets you up for the storyline that follows for Loretta's meeting Ronnie in the bakery. What I think is funny about that is that Cher says she she doesn't believe in curses, but yes, she does. She believes her first <laughs> marriage was doomed because she got married at City Hall instead of in a church with a priest and the whole nine, you know, and all this. And then, yeah. you know, first husband wanted to have a baby. And I was like, no, wait. And then he got hit by a bus. And OK, it was all cursed. It's just cursed. You know, it's that, all bad luck. 
Yeah, it's just bad. It's just bad luck. I just I got nothing but bad luck, and I keep hearing her say this, and I'm just laughing because it's very much like a Rodney Dangerfield performance, but coming out of share, and she plays it so earnestly. I mean, I think that's the thing I can say about her performance here, and I, I'll put my cards on the table. Not a big share fan uh, on any level, like just not really my thing, you know, uh, at all. I've, I don't know that I've ever seen her in something where I thought, yes, share was in that. I remember the only other movie I can really name that she's in that I know is Mask uh, with Eric Stoltz. You didn't and see Sam. Mermaid. No, I did. Oh, yes, I did. But what? I watched that for Winona Ryder, and that was my only reason to watch that. And it's obviously the oh. only thing I remember from it. That and Christina Ricci almost drowns. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so, but I mean, I never well, saw Cher in something. movies you got to go back and watch. But anyway. I, I never thought, like, I never saw Cher in something like, oh, yes, Cher's in it. But I'm watching her play this. I'm like, you know, she, she really melts into this character, and it's funny to watch. And... I think everybody else in this movie, that's the kind of actor they are, except maybe Nicolas Cage, who's kind of always playing deranged Nicolas Cage. But everybody else just sort of becomes who they are. Like, every time Danny Aiello shows up in a movie, I'm like, yeah, he's Marty from down the street, or he's, you know, Joey Big Thumbs, or whatever. You know, he's he's whoever he's supposed to be in these different movies. And the same with Vincent Gardenia and Olivia Dukakis, too, who can go from playing like a Southern Belle and Still Magnolias to something like this, you know, and it's just a whiplash, and you don't, you don't lose track because they just melt into the role and that's one of the fun things to watch Cher do and, and I did get a kick out of the running gag of bad luck and I don't believe in curses but yes I'm cursed well you know what the one of the wonderful things about this movie is everybody blends into this I mean we've even got John Mahoney who yeah. shows up out of nowhere in the middle of the restaurant and is fabulous but you know we leave here and Loretta's kind of got this feeling of okay maybe it's a curse we see her go on to another accounting job the next day with her aunt and her uncle and the, you know there's a whole gag about um roses I, and which is another one of my favorite moments and I'm gonna like keep going on tangents about it because there are little pieces here that make me so happy and kind of formed my life and how I respond to things um you know she somebody talks about oh how fancy the roses are that somebody's receiving as a gift and she says oh well somebody Somebody who's who spends money on that is spending a lot of money on something who's going to end up in a gar- in the garbage. And somebody says, "Oh, well, you don't like roses?" She says, "No. What are you kidding? I love roses." And that kind of sets up this whole. She's got this whole romantic uh, personality that she isn't letting out to everybody else because she's kind of she's she's got a wall up. And I, I frequently talk about walls that that characters in movies have up. But I think that's kind of the way plots go: is everybody's got a wall that somebody's got to break down. And then we transition from there to um, when Loretta finally calls to speak to Ronnie, Johnny's brother, who's working in the the bakery basement um, and he doesn't want to come to the phone and she and he hangs up on her. He gets on the phone and says, uh, what's wrong can never be made right and hangs up the phone and you're left wondering, okay, what's going on? And then we remember that Johnny had said, oh, there's bad blood between me and my brother. Right. And I, I want to go back to something you said a second ago. I think that's the character theme that all of our characters that we pay attention to in this movie have. They all have a wall that they need to go through, go around, go over, tear down in some way. Cher's got hers with her whole bad luck and tradition and curses and all this stuff. Johnny's got his with his mother and just sort of his own insecurities and things like that. Ronnie's definitely got his. We're going to talk about those in a minute with, you know, the bad blood with his brother and what happened to him, which is hilarious the way it gets played off. (laughs) But her dad, Cosmo, has his own walls. Rose is trying to break through those. I mean, everybody here has got walls. And I think that's kind of the theme of this movie 
movies. Everybody's sort of breaking through their walls. Even And that's what's funny is that they're all so closely knit to one another, but they all have walls they have to get through. Even, you know, quiet old grandpa, you know, who finally starts talking at the very end of the movie, uh, has <laughs> walls, you know. And, and that, it's just funny to me how that that's a neat theme. I'm glad you, you said that because it's a great note. Um, we got to talk about Nicolas Cage and Ronnie now. We've, we've put it off enough. The story <laughs> I knew is. You jump there. You wanted. You wanted to hear him. Do you want me to tell the story, or do you want to tell the story? Let me tell it because I. I've got to tell you <laughs> what I saw because you've lived with this movie your whole life, and I've only seen it a couple of times. R- Ronnie's whole beef is. He was going to be getting married to this girl and his brother demanded that he, you know, make him some bread and he was using the slicer and he got distracted in some way and he cut off his you know, fingers on his hand. So now he's got this kind of wooden prosthetic on his hand. The girl left him and now he's just this sullen guy working in the basement of the family bakery and he's just miserable, but he's also like completely Nicholas Cage, like, face off crazy like he's doing all the stuff that you know Nicolas Cage does as an actor but here he's like 25 or 26 doing this and I cannot tell you how much I cackled at this and just watching him just (laughs) chew scenery not knowing what to do and then the funniest thing I read was that nobody wanted him to do this movie the studio didn't want him to share like threatened to quit if he didn't get the role which I thought was just great well so to truth be told he didn't want to do the movie either, but his manager convinced him to do the movie. Nicholas Cage wanted to go do more punk, edgy movies because it was the 80s. I mean, he was, um, and I'm going to correct you because I love you. He was only 24 when he did this oh, movie. Oh, wow. He's younger than I thought. Uh, so he was really young. So the age difference here is Nicholas Cage, 24, and we've got Cher at 42. So huge age gap here. And the wonderful thing that we come into here is this scene where Ronnie loses his crap in the basement where they're baking. They only shot it once. They only shot it once because the first take was so good. They didn't want to go do it again. And I got to give Nicholas Cage credit. This is, you know, he's been in a few movies that, before this one, but this one, he lets it go and does something that's completely out of his element. I want to go back and mention that in, in this scene there, there, we have a couple of bakers in the background that are, you know, they're just our, they're extras in the scene. But the wonderful thing about one of the bakers who has a few lines is he's actually the owner of the bakery where they filmed everything. <laughs> and he said, I'm not going to shut down anything. I'm going to keep baking. They were like, well, then you've got to be in this scene. He was like, fine, I'll say my lines and I'm going to keep baking bread. <laughs> Bread, it sounds like bread, the characters bread. in this movie, which is great. Right, he does. So it was perfect. Like, keep the guy back there, your bacon bread. It's fine. One of the, <laughs> I always chuckle, though, because as Ronnie loses his crap, he's talking about his hand, talking about losing his bride, and he lifts his hand up and points at his hand. He says, this wood is fake. Not this wooden hand is fake, but this wood is fake. <laughs> but the scene... <laughs> But the scene is so good. They didn't go back and reshoot it. They just left it in there. They were like, nope. No, Nick it, did it's, it. We're done. We're leaving it there. What, what you get there with him, though, and what they set up is that Ronnie and Johnny are com- could not be more different. And, I mean, I, you talk about the age difference between – Nicholas Cage and Cher. I think Danny Aiello had like, I don't know, 30 years on Cage at this point. I mean, something <laughs> yeah, 25, something have. like that. I mean, he could have been his dad for goodness sakes. So it's like, well, you know, but again, I, stereotypical Italian family, there's, you know, stereotype kids all over the place. Right. And, and the, I think, he, you know, that, that's even mentioned by you know, somebody else in the movie at some point. So I didn't really get caught up on that. I just think it's funny though, that you've got 
such different brothers and different personalities and they, they just operate so differently. And he's very much somebody who's very driven by his emotions. And he's, I mean, he's so melodramatic. He's like, I just need this one thing. And then that'll be it. And I mean, later on he tells Loretta, like, if you just go to the opera with me or just have dinner with me, it'll just, that'd be all I need. And then I'm good. I mean, it's, he's so ridiculous, but he's yeah. so, but, but the good thing about him and what you know about him is you believe he's, he's a guy that just wears his heart on his sleeve. And that is, something that Loretta kind of wanted out of a guy, but didn't know she wanted it until she met one. Right. Um, I, I mean, I mean the, the drama is one of the things that appeals to her because she's been kind of seeing Johnny and let's face it, there is no way Johnny and Loretta have had sex. Like that was my whole feeling through this entire thing. There is no way those two have done even remotely a kiss except when she drops him off at the airport because the, the relationship is so awkward um which is beautiful but at the same time it's it's amusing that she agrees to to marry him um but going forward we see her kind of respond to ronnie in a different way than she responds to johnny she doesn't feel like she needs to boss him around as much she does you know because she's she's making a mistake upstairs in his apartment he he asks her up to his apartment uh or pardon me she says let's go talk so he doesn't ask her up there she invites herself um so they say let's go talk and what you know we pan to him listening to la boheme which if you have not listened to la boheme go listen to la boheme but um because it's a classic opera but you know he's standing there listening to the opera on vinyl and she's in there cooking for him and you know he I, I like my steak well done. And she says, well, you'll, you'll eat it bloody to feed your blood. So she's kind of told him, well, you know what? I'm not playing your game. <laughs> and then sets the steak down in front of him. And, and, you know, he tells her how good it is. And then we go into a whole different dynamic of learning where their bad blood between uh, Ronnie and Jan- Johnny came from. Yeah, I love this whole talk too because it, before this, she's gone and bought a bottle of wine at the local liquor store, and you got the two couple that are kind of bickering with each other, and then they they find something sweet to say to each other, and <laughs> yeah. they're having this whole discussion about you know men are wolves, and they're always you know on the prowl and all this nonsense, and she picks up on that and tells him like, no, I think you were just a wolf and you didn't want to be in that relationship with that girl. So you, you got yourself caught in that trap and you just bit off your own hand the way the wolf will, yep. you know, and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, she's up there psychoanalyzing. I mean, it was very, oh, it was fun. It was neat to watch her, you know, take her liquor store psychology and use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. However, we got to go back to that like moment in the liquor store. We, and, and reference that she takes the bottle of wine home and, at that point, she takes it home and says to her dad, hey, I've got something to tell you. And this is another great uh, Vincent Gardenia moment in this movie. And he has a few. Um, she takes her dad to the kitchen. She pours the spumante because it's it's Asti spumante. And she puts the sugar cubes in each of them. By the way, I did that at my wedding because I'm so obsessed with this movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she and her dad sit down and she says, I'm going to get married. And he says, again? You got married one time before it didn't work out. <laughs> and then they go into the bad luck thing. So this is the relationship between father and daughter is very amusing. And um, I, I'm going back because these are little points that are great for these this character development um, and us learning about them. Because Sheer goes that, then goes upstairs with her father to her mother and they kind of wake her up. Rose, Rose, Rose. And she says, who's dead? Nobody. 
<laughs> and you know, I, I gotta say, I gotta give my mother credit and I wish she was here with us to like doing this show with us now because she'd have so much to say. You know, my mom picks up the phone and she says, who's dead? Whenever I call and I'm like, ma, really? <laughs> Nobody's dead. Let's go, like, let's keep going. So this kind of like this movie, you know, wove a lot into my heart, but let's go forward again to we've got Ronnie and Loretta. They're in Ronnie's apartment. He eats his steak. He eats his pasta. And then she gets so irritated and she looks at him. She says, you got whiskey. Uh, how about you give me some whiskey? And, and, you know, they had this great discussion and back and forth, back and forth. And then the wolf discussion that you mentioned comes in and he throws the table and he picks her up and he plants this like firm kiss on her. Oh, it's and total then, like sparks fly. And like, I'm surprised the music didn't raise at that moment stuff too. I mean, it was so, it's so cheesy, but yet it totally works. Oh, you, and you know, the reason it totally works is Nicholas Cage during the shooting of this film. He said, I'm not going to kiss her. He says, I'm not going to kiss her until we're rolling film. So the hmm. first kiss that we see on scene is literally Nick Cage and Cher having their first kiss. Him throwing the table and picking her up because he was like, I've been obsessed with this woman my entire life. I'm 24. She's 42. I get to kiss Cher. Oh, my God. This is wonderful. And he refused to do it in any rehearsals. So that take is the real thing. So that's why we get the awkward kiss. Not like some romantic rehearsed kiss. But we get this awkward kiss where she's like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> Oh, I know it's great, but then I love how she just throws herself right onto him, and then the whole what I have to say is probably the most awkward and weird love scene I've seen in a while, maybe since Puppet <laughs> Master last October. I don't know, but I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of clothes and a lot of weird. There's so much clothing, Nicholas Cage, so much clothing and moaning and weirdness. Just, and, but what I love is Cher the whole time, like I don't care. Go ahead, let's just do this. Let's yeah. you know, it's take like, me to the bed. Leave nothing for him to marry but the skin. <laughs> over my bones like oh my gosh i'm thrown back to some sort of halloween episode of some sort of show where i've got this shriveled corpse with skin on it but at the same time i'm like all right that works it works for me for some reason it works it's so because it's so it's so played for laughs and it's so funny like it this is the quintessential kind of romantic comedy and i would i would say this is a movie that's a comedy that just happens to have romance in it because these people are hamming it up the whole time <laughs> and and it's so ridiculous that if anybody else was doing it i'd be like no this does not work but it's something about nicholas gage and Cher and their just eccentric energy together makes that whole thing work and i don't know it's, it's funny to watch it's funny to watch her do this with him you know i I think one of the things about this movie that for me makes it so great and and Nicolas Cage generally drives me crazy, but the beautiful thing is his awkwardness works. We expect Ronnie to be awkward. We expect there to be a little friction and a little awkwardness and oh crap, did that really happen? And yeah, it did happen. Um, and him not being able to kind of separate emotions from reality. And she's kind of going, okay, wait, this is reality. This is emotion. And when then we see her go to confession after everything that's happened, after Ronnie takes her to the bed, she wakes up and she goes straight to confession. And who does she run into but her mother? Right. Who says, hey, I told your father you came home last night, but I know you didn't. <laughs> well, I think the best line in that whole bit, Loretta yells at Ronnie, take your revenge on me. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> I think we know where, where we are at this point. But we should talk about what's happening in the cuts in between this. 
we see her dad, who is a plumber, and he's doing plumbing estimations. So he finds out he's got to pay for this wedding. And he starts doing estimations on people. And he's like, trust me, you don't want to go with the cheap pipes on everybody, right? And, <laughs> and at first, I was like... Everything's copper. Yeah, I was like, okay. So at first, I'm like, ah, this is dad's scheme to pay for the wedding. But what we find out is he's also because he's got a lady on the side. And Mona. And we get to meet her as part of this. And you get to see... The way he is at home and how he's all about, like, oh, I don't want to go to sleep. It's too much like death. And, you know, he's up and his wife's been in bed for hours at this point. Like, they just seem to kind of live separate lives, but in the same place together. But then when he's around this other woman, he's got all this, you know, he's giving her jewelry and all this other stuff. And I don't know. It, it makes you go like, man, what a scumbuck. Yeah, like, no, really. I know. Things that make you go, hmm, right? So the the wonderful thing that we we miss here um, before we get to Mona, his side piece, is that between the three of them when they're in the bedroom and Rose is in bed and Loretta's sitting on the bed and Cosmo's standing there kind of listening to everything, is um, he says, well, who's going to pay for the wedding? And Cher says, well, the father of the bride plays. I, I won't pay for nothing. And Rose yells, you're made of money. <laughs> And she knows how much he's bringing in because she knows he's a, he, he's not a failing plumber. He's got money. Um, you know, she knows he's got enough of it. And then we see him go out with the girlfriend. And now, as you said, now we see where the money's going. It's not that it's <laughs> that he doesn't have it coming in. It's that he's spending it on somebody else. Well, there's that too. And, and this brought up a question for me. And I, I know how I read it, but I wanted to ask you, because again, this is your jam as a movie. Does, Rose knows, right? Like, she knows he's cheating on her. She does. And we see it in confession. Loretta goes to confession to confess that, you know, she has sinned against Johnny. And then she's sitting there, in, you know, she's sitting there praying in the pews, doing her rosary. And her mother whispers, Cosmo's cheating on me. And she goes, what? How do you know? A woman knows. Yeah, I mean, it's true. A woman knows. Um, it's it, <laughs> So, you know, she, her daughter already knows. So when Loretta later on finds out that her dad really is cheating and then it's not mom making up some story about what dad's doing on the side, it's kind of that, holy crap, this light bulb, mom really knew what was going on. How did I not see it? Right. And it also makes, it makes you really feel for Rose in this because she's... You know, she's not threatening to leave. She doesn't hit him over the head with a frying pan, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Like, she's just sort of like, well, this is, she's trying to figure it out too. That's why she has that great conversation with John Mahoney in the restaurant, which, by the way, I always associate John Mahoney with like Chicago movies for some reason, but you know, he plays New York just as well. And, I love how he plays a professor that's trying to like sleep with all of his students too. And I'm like, Oh yes, that was an eighties trope still. Right. So <laughs> we had that. And then I'm, my wife looked at me. She's like, as if, by the way, I mean, he, he looked like he was 50 then. I'm sure he wasn't, but he's always just looked, he's always had, you know, gray hair or whatever, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. He looked that old in Tin Men. If you go back and watch Tin Men, he still looks that old. And by the way, I understand why Barbara Hershey picked him over Danny, Danny DeVito, but that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so she has this conversation with him. She has a conversation conversation later with Johnny when he returns home and, and Loretta's not there and saw this why men, you know, run, why do they chase, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And she says, this, I think they fear death, you know, and she has this whole, again, she has her own like, you know, sidebar psychology to all of this and why it happens. And it's almost like that's what she's had to resolve herself to understand in order to let this go on. Right. And in some ways it makes her really tragic, but in other ways it it's, 
don't know, it makes you really like her too, is as how earnest she is. Oh, well, Rose is a boss, but before we get into how boss Rose is, let's go back because we missed one of the points of this whole entire movie. The title of the movie is Moonstruck. It was originally titled The Wolf and the Bride. Ooh, that would have been a bad title, by the way. It would have, like, it was seriously the worst choice in the entire world, The Wolf and the Bride. That sounds but like a bad movie... horror movie, by the way. So. <laughs> it does sound like a bad horror movie. So the whole basis of this movie is is around, like, moon cycles, believe it or not. I don't know how deep you want to get with this. But we, if we uh, go back probably, you know, to, uh, you know, you know, a little bit further than we are now. I'm going to say if you're watching the movie, it's about 10 minutes. There's a whole family dinner where, you know, everybody's sitting at dinner. We got the grandfather. We got the aunt and the uncle. We got Cosmo. We got Rose and Loretta's chair is empty. Everybody's wondering where she is. Oh, she's probably out planning for the wedding. And then we have a moment with a, this dear old grandfather. God bless this actor. Um, I don't remember his name, and I'm okay with that. But he was born in Russia and then moved to... Um, to Italy and he's just the most adorable man in the entire world who has like at least six dogs and he's always feeding them food and we have a couple of beautiful Olympia Dukakis moments but then we get to these moments where um the aunt and the uncle are waking up in the middle of the night woken up by the moon and the brother of Rose says you know I knew the night that I saw the last time I saw a moon like this was the night that Cosmo proposed to Rose. I dreamt that he was standing outside there. So we get this like whole cosmic, like this, this destined relationship between Rose and Cosmo, which we'll, we'll revisit at the end. But you know, the old man then later says the moon brings the woman to the man. So it helps us understand why this relationship is happening. We've got huge ass moon out there that's bringing all these couples together. Um, and that's why the moon, pardon me, the movie ended up being called moonstruck was because we, there's this constant reference to the moon. But anyway, now we're back with Ronnie and Loretta where Loretta, you know, looks at him and, and Ronnie says, well, I'm in love with you. And she's slaps him and says we'll snap out of it i think that's the oscar moment like i remembered that from <laughs> like the oscar clip that they'll play before like you know and chair for moonstruck and you know that's that's the one thing i always remember from this movie is her beating the hell out of nicholas cage you know like no snap out of it you know and, <laughs> and it's so funny too because it's it's uh, the humor in that is so great because she's just like no if we've had this moment but you destroyed me <laughs> physically and mentally and whatever but we can't do it anymore and it's yeah, you again, ruined my life <laughs> yeah they're, they're both so so like melodramatic about it <laughs> and that it's funny to watch and and he's just going like just go to the opera with me and then my life can be over and it'll be okay and i'm like <laughs> you're yeah, right you know but but i mean look i give the guy credit for having the game to go like hey i don't just want to be you know friday night hookup or whatever let's let's go to the opera and this whole thing we should say this whole opera is like the beginning set piece for this whole movie like they're wheeling in the stuff for the opera at the opera house they're they're constantly walking by it on the street it's like they they realized La Boheme is going to be performed, so we just had to build everything around that at the time. It's very organic, the way that that's just sort of laced through the movie. Oh, well, you know, there are a few little things I'm going to reveal at the end that are going to show you how organic that was. <laughs> well, let's talk about but- though, what, what happens here, because the whole bit is, hey, I you know, I'll go on the opera date with her. And when she's getting ready to go to the opera date, that's when Cher does the makeover. And as you say, she becomes Loretta number two. Like she, you know, she puts right. on a slinky dress. She's got the big poofy hair. She puts on the dark makeup. It's more what I would think Cher looks like. 
Oh yeah, she she re completely reinvents herself. And the thing that we're we're struck with is her hairdresser going, "Oh my gosh, I've been waiting years to do this." And it was funny because I said, "Hey, Ma, I'm reviewing Moonstruck on Friday." She says, "Oh, good." And I said, "Yeah." I said, "Jay told me it was cute." She goes, "Oh no." She says. Tell him it's perfection. I was like, okay, so wait, let's go to this eyebrow scene. I said, wouldn't they like her eyebrows are as big as her face? It's like caterpillars. I said, wouldn't they would just wax that? She goes, oh no, it was the eighties, especially she was going out that night. They would have plucked him. And in my mind, I'm thinking who the hell is going to sit there and pluck him? So I had this moment, which you didn't have this moment, but I had this moment where I was sitting there going, God, she's plucking all those eyebrows. That sucks. This is a long makeover that, that Loretta went through to go to the opera. <laughs> I'm sitting there watching this with my wife, and, and I look at her, and I'm like, <laughs> is this what this is like? She's like, when I t say I have to go to the salon, and it's going to take me like an hour, this is why. You know, I'm like, oh, I get it now. You know, so, yeah, I, I had that whole moment, and I asked her the same thing. I was like, the eyebrow? She's like, it's the 80s. That's what everybody did. And then, like, she pulled up a picture of her from, like, the mid-90s, and I was like, oh, yes, I see. So, you know, it was. I think it was something everybody had. And as somebody who sports a good set of caterpillars myself, I can understand. Uh, so whatever. <laughs> Cher gets this great makeover. She's walking down the street. She's walking confident now. She's got this whole, you know, 80s thing going. And what I love about this is that the soundtrack to this, and you and Brian talked a little bit about this on that session show, is that the soundtrack to this doesn't really get into pop music at the time. It's all classics and classical music, and it's you know, oh, Dean it's Martin, great. and all the, it's all this, what I, I said, it's like leftovers from a Martin Scorsese movie thrown into a romantic <laughs> comedy. Um, no, well, I mean, it, it's classic Italian, so I, I'd be lying if I said um, that a lot of this was not played at my wedding. It was, and my husband looked like <laughs> looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, if we don't pay, play that Zamore, like right before we cut this damn cake, I'm going to cut you. <laughs> so we did, but um, it's if you go back and listen to it, and then listen to it alongside its companion, Labo M, you will find that ninety percent of the music that is in this soundtrack is actually adapted pieces from Labo M, which you know, God love Dick Hyman for adapting a lot of this music to be used in this movie because it's wonderful. Um, I'm. I will give credit to them for using Vicky Carr because they play the It Must Be Him, which is it's not just a song that Loretta's father, Cosmo, listens to. You know, and the joke is Rose says, yeah, now he's going to go listen to that damn Vicky Carr record. And when he comes to bed, he won't touch me. But um, it, it, it's echoing kind of fate thing that we're seeing here between Loretta and Ronnie is it must be hidden. You know, when the door rings, I jump. Um and then I pray that it's him. And if you listen to the lyrics, it really echoes through the entire story. Yeah, no, it, I, I did catch a little bit of that. And I think it is smart. It's, it's again, it's a smart way to, to tie your soundtrack to your story. It's how the, the songs help propel the set pieces along. Because again, it's a really simple movie. We're just kind of kicking around a couple of three blocks here and watching five or six people interact. And we're really following one woman through this journey that she goes on. And what I got a kick out of is she goes to the opera with Nicolas Cage. And this is what just, I don't know, struck me as, I don't know, different. It's not what you would expect from the guy who sweeps her off her feet. But Ronnie is, I mean, he's got one hand, but he's working through it. He works in the, you know, the basement of the family bakery, shoveling coal into the, the wood fire ovens all day. Right. But he likes the opera. 
You know, it's not what you would expect necessarily, right? Unless he's supposed to be like a serial killer or something. And he, <laughs> he takes her to the opera and it's almost like he knows, like, if I get this woman to go to the opera with me, she's going to be so moved by this story and all of this stuff that it's, it, she's just going to be putty in my hands. And I'm like, man, what a sweet, like, slick play, man. Cause it, it's, it was a smooth move. So it was a smooth move. And, um, I'm going to skip over Loretta seeing her dad and Mona at the opera. And, oh, my God, Dad, what are you doing? What about Mom? Because we leave the opera with Loretta pissed off. And there's no other way to describe it. She's she's pissed off at her dad. She's pissed off at herself for cheating on her, her fiancé. And then, you know, she, she just goes into this talking, blah, 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 spilling her guts. And she ends up with Ronnie outside his apartment. She says, this is your place. And he's like, yeah, I know there's a last scene in the opera where we see two characters, Mimi and Rodolfo talking about their romance and, you know, Mimi's dying, but you know, she's, she's got TB and she's dying and blah, 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 blah. But if you look at the translation of the lyrics, it's a man confessing to a woman about how much she means to him. And then he looks and he looks at her and he says, it's freezing outside, but it would be much sweeter to stay here with you. And retransition into this moment with Loretta and Ronnie, where they're having this argument about how he wants her to come upstairs. And she looks at him and she says, it's freezing out here. So we literally take the opera and then apply it to the real world of this relationship. And it blew my mind this last time watching it. Cause I was like, I'm going to look up what those lyrics to that song said. And I was like, Oh shit. It's How did I miss that for 30 years? <laughs> it's very screenwriting 101 and I don't say that as a bad thing. Like I'll give you another movie that does this and it's Back to the Future. That screenplay pays itself off in every possible way. Everything you get in the first 15 minutes of that movie tells you what's going to happen over the next, you know, 75. Second, it, my second, my second favorite movie, by the way, is back to the future. So that doesn't surprise me. So, yeah. So, I mean, the, the tightness of the script and things like that, and some people will ding scripts for that. I won't, I think that's smart because that's very hard to do. And it's very hard to, to one construct it. And it's another thing to pull it off. Well, it, it's not just that, but to cross two languages, like we're taking Italian and applying it to English and wondering if anybody's going to notice. Well, and that's the thing though, is you know that 80% of your audience probably won't notice it, but the ones who do will just appreciate it even more. But the, what I love about this is that they don't bother to call that out. I mean, they kind of, you know, explain it because her and Nicholas Cage are having a whole conversation and she's talking about why she got teared up with it and all this stuff. And they, they kind of go, yeah, he's, you know, she's got TB, she's dying. It's just so sweet. You know, they don't have to go and like, and you remember that time when he said it'd be much better to be, you know, warmer with you. They don't have to call it out. And I appreciate that that the movie doesn't treat us like idiots. And so if you know that or you bother to look it up like you did, now it just enhances it. So if I go back and watch this again, I'm like, oh, yeah, now I'll know that little piece. I think that's neat. And obviously it's made by people, Norman Jewison in particular, who knew that and wanted that as part of this. So the people that would get it would would really appreciate it. And everybody else who didn't would just see that, again, the emotion and the romance of Lava M was going to play over into what was happening between Ronnie and Loretta here. 
Yeah, and, and I don't know how many movies we could have based on La Boheme, but it seems to be one of those stories that kind of transcends time almost. Can, can I tell you, the only reason I know what that is at all is because those are the tickets that Dan Aykroyd has when he gets arrested in trading places. That's the only reason I know what that is at all. So you can thank Dan Aykroyd for that, uh, for my any, any knowledge I had of that before watching this movie. We do have to talk about, though, the fact that she does see her dad with Mona at the theater and that big confrontation and you can tell like he realizes he's totally busted oh yeah yeah no he knows he's done he's sunk and he tries to play it off like well what are you doing here no what are you doing here and they go back and forth you know a couple of times and you'll hear my new england accent i can't hold it back anymore when i talk about this movie it just comes out they go back with the what are you doing here like several times before they say well you're married and he says he doesn't want his um daughter acting like a putana which is you know a prostitute and it's um because not only is this The first time that the daughter, Loretta, has seen her dad out with somebody else, who she obviously knows because she calls her out by name. So who knows? She must work for the plumbing company or something. But then this is the first time her dad has seen her makeover, so he had no clue. So there's the shock value of this, oh, crap, what are we doing? Yeah, absolutely. And in the middle of all of this, we get the scene with Rose at the diner who's eating alone because Loretta's out that night and, you know, the husband's out doing whatever. And that's when she sees John <laughs> Mahoney get stiffed again by, you know, his latest, you know, senior trying to pass the class. And they have dinner together and they have this whole conversation about men and women. And he walks her home and it's real sweet, you know, and, and oh, everything. But. That's a precursor for what's going to happen when Johnny comes back into town because his his mother's had this miraculous recovery. We didn't talk about that. That's a, one of the most hilarious scenes is when he calls from <laughs> Italy and mother's on the bed just oh you know and all this stuff and he's just weeping you know over over the phone. Oh god! And I'm like, I remember 1980s long distance telephone. Yeah, it it sucked. It wasn't like it is nowadays. Well, you can FaceTime halfway around the world and it's no big deal. (laughs) The funny thing about this moment that we're having with this old Italian mother is that this is what everything is like, is the men just lament this whole, like, my mom's sick and I got to go take care of her. And and, like, I'll look at my dad, like when my my grandmother was sick and I'd be like, dad, she, she twisted her ankle. What are you going to go do? Like. She's not dying. She's fine. So I remember going through this with my dad. And here we have her laying in the bed saying, how long must my, must I wait? And he's kind of shushing everybody. We realize there's really nothing wrong with her. She's probably got a cold. She probably had some viral thing going on. And he's making this huge big deal out of it because he's super dramatic. Um, and then, you know, we go to a different Italian mother, Rose. And we got to mention the fact that this is not John Mahoney's first moment on the screen. The first time we see John Mahoney and God love him because he's fantastic. He's sitting in the restaurant right before Johnny proposes to Loretta. And, um, you know, he gets some lip back from his student and she throws her glass on his face. And his famous line is get rid of all evidence of her and give me a big glass of vodka. And then all the waiters can say is yes, sir. And they run off and do it, which means this isn't the first time. So maybe this is the fourth or fifth time we've seen him by the time we get to Rose having dinner by herself, which is, which is very sad, but she brings John Mahoney in and they have this moment where he realizes he doesn't have to be this playboy. 
But no, if he, he wants does. to have somebody like Rose, he's really got to bring his A game and not be a playboy. Exactly. And another great actor in those scenes playing the waiter, Bruno Kirby. Both of the, he and John Mahoney both rest in peace, by the way. They're both gone now, but been in so many movies through the years. And Oh, Bobo was precious, though. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're both just great. And I do love, though, the, the real honest conversation he has with her. He just has no reason to put up any front with her the way he maybe does with, you know, Susie Sr. or whatever. And she, <laughs> she draws that out of him. And then so when Johnny does come back, I, I settle it up to say when Johnny comes back, Rose has had the dress rehearsal conversation about why men chase, you know, and she's mm-hmm. trying to get Johnny to you know, tell her what's going on. And he's talking to her about, you oh, know, my mom's well now, but I don't know. What does that mean? If I you know get married, is she's going to kill her and all that? And he's the one that gets it because he says to her, like, I think it's because men fear death. And she's like, exactly. Yes, finally, somebody agrees with me, you know, and they have this real bonding moment. And I, I had to chuckle to myself because I have a really great relationship with my mother-in-law. She's just fantastic. I mean, I couldn't have got a better one. And Debbie and I have had those kind of conversations too, where we, she'll like, I can tell like she's trying to get me to go somewhere and I know I agree with her. So I'll say it. And then we have that aha, you know, and it's just funny. It's not nearly as dramatic as it, she's not Italian and all this stuff, but it is funny, um, to, to see. And I, I kind of had a private chuckle to myself. I was like, oh, I've had similar conversations with my mother-in-law and, and you know, his future mother-in-law. So it was. Was funny, but this sends Johnny, you know, into this mental tailspin where he doesn't know what he can do. Right? He's got to he's got to figure out what he's going to do. So he's going to come back first thing in the morning. Of course, Loretta spends the night with Ronnie, and I love how she rolls in. Like I think I texted you, like the walk of shame, and you're like, "Oh, there's no shame in this at all." Yeah, there, there's no shame. There's no shame. But let's go back to that moment that lo- that um, Rose shares with uh, Johnny in the living room, and he says, "I think it's because they fear death," and then. Cosmo walks in and Rose looks at him and she says, Hey, Cosmo, I want you to know no matter what you do, you're going to die just like everybody else. And he says, I'll remember that Rose. And then gives some speech and goes off to bed. (laughs) I'll look at my husband sometimes and be like, why are you worried about the dishes? We could die tomorrow. The dishes still won't be done. Don't worry about it. Sit down and watch a TV show with me. It's not a big deal. Um, (laughs) But yeah, with (laughs) the, Because I'm that practical. But yeah, then we get to this moment where, as you said, you said, oh, this walk of shame. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. There's no shame. She's kicking a can. She's going, God, that was the best night ever. I don't feel bad about it at all. And then she gets in the kitchen and she's dancing in front of her mother. And her mother goes, what the hell is wrong with you? Your life's going down the toilet. And one of the great things I learned <laughs> as I did research for this, because my mom and I, we go back and forth where we send each other little snippets of research about this movie. And uh, one of the great things is that line wasn't in the movie. That was something Olympia Dukakis's mom said to her occasionally, <laughs> your life is going down the toilet when she was doing stage plays and she wasn't getting parts and she was doing things that her mother didn't approve of. You know, it was just one of those she threw in there and it worked. It worked. No. As shares like, in the closet, changing her clothes to get ready for Johnny to show up. Oh, the best part is that her mom calls out the hickey she's got on her neck and then she calls it like a love <laughs> nibble or something like that. You get and, a love bite on your neck. Yeah, what are you going to do? She's like, just get, whatever, make up, whatever. And, and I love how Sharon's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, and I'm laughing at this because that response is so, and I, I mean, I hate to just tell personal, it's so the way my wife would be like, yeah, whatever, you know, and so it just plays stuff off. And it, it, I just, I'm watching it with her and I'm just laughing uh, the whole time because it's very much like, 
like that sense of humor is the same. And so, oh, but I, yeah. I love how like she's sitting there and her dad kind of looks at her and there's Ronnie and then there's grandpa. And then here comes, you know, all these other people over for breakfast and everybody's just sitting there. And she's like, don't, don't look at me like that. <laughs> yes. Yes. I shacked up with him. Yes. Whatever. We'll figure that out in a minute. We don't you know? need, we don't need to, we don't need to talk about it. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. There's this whole subplot too. Like she's supposed to make like the bank deposit and on her way to do that is when she does the big makeover. So the aunt and the uncle come over. They're like, do you have something you want to tell us? She's like, oh yeah, I totally forgot. Oh, here it is. Oh, thank goodness. You know, and they just have like this whole, okay, whew, you know, uh, crisis averted from the flower shop for the one day deposit. Before Johnny even shows up, we have Rose, Loretta, Cosmo. I don't know where their grandpa's even had a bed yet. And then we got, um, the aunt and the uncle. Right. But the aunt is the one who goes and answers the door and she's like, it's Johnny Camarari. And then he walks in and everybody's going, okay, what do we do now? Like they're waiting for the explosion. And I think the best part of this is Johnny looks and he says, Loretta, I need to talk to you. Can we go somewhere else? And she's like, no, I need my family around me now. He's like, I can't marry you. And she goes, what? <laughs> and and you expect the opposite of her. You expect her to be like, yeah, all right, I'm in love with your brother. But no, now she throws a fit. And to the point where, you know, he's talking about how, you know, if I marry you, my mother's going to die. And then she looks, you know, he, he says, in time, you'll realize this is the best thing to ever happen to you. She says, yeah, in time, you'll drop dead and I'll come to your wedding in a red dress. I mean, we get this <laughs> whole like flux of emotions where she's like, oh, my God, I'm in love with Ronnie. And then all of a sudden, like, Johnny, you're breaking up with me. What's that? <laughs> exactly right and then you know, she, she throws the pinky ring at him and he's like okay fine and then that's when ronnie's like hey let me borrow that for just a minute johnny you know? can i borrow that yeah. ring? wait what for what exactly and, and, then, and then cage does his whole proposal and she's like of course and, I'm, and poor johnny's Danny Ellis sitting over there going like hold on a minute what <laughs> like what just happened and, but the wonderful thing is that that, that moment we realize that all Johnny wants is family. Yeah. Johnny doesn't want to get laid. He doesn't want to get married. He doesn't want to have kids. He doesn't want responsibility. Whereas Ronnie's like, you know what? I've been taking care of the business. I, you know, I've got a life and this woman makes me happy. Now, mind you, neither of these Jack waffles has a ring. (laughs) (laughs) The the funny thing about it, though, the best thing has a ring. The best thing is, though, that that you say Johnny wants a family, and he's sitting off to the side watching them all, you know, pop the wine and everything. And the uncle comes over to him and says, "No, you got to be over here and do this." He's like, "No, I don't think I will." He's like, "Yeah, you got to be with the family," and he just smiles at that moment. And we, I didn't pick that up until you said that, and now I'm like, ah. I think it's Grandpa, and I think what Grandpa does is says, "No, you're part of the family now. You, you, you." You come make a toast. Your brother's getting married. Get over there. And what I found interesting is they use that as the last scene right before they go to the credits. But in the shooting of this entire last scene with everybody in the kitchen, this entire cast was in turmoil. They couldn't get their timing right. They hated each other. They were screaming at each other. There was a fight, 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 fight. And finally, Theodore um, stands up and says, everybody calm down. And that's not exactly how he said it. He said it in Italian. I don't know what he said, but he said, everybody calm down. He said, we're a family here. He said, talk like we're family. And that's how they pulled the scene together and finally got the last take of this shoot. Um, 
which is it, which is kind of wonderful that this old man was like, what are you doing? Like everybody come mm-hmm. together. Let's do this. Let's make this movie. Let's work together as a family. And then the whole message of this, um, as much as we want to say it's a romantic comedy, it's about family, family dynamics. It's a family comedy. It really is. And it's about how oh, family is who you choose it to be in a lot of ways. And it comes together in a lot. And, and it, the finished photo is everybody together and they're, they're all in one big, you know, frame together there, like one big happy Italian family. And, or, you know, if you go forward 20 something years, it's your big fat Greek wedding family or again or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, really, like how many times have you seen that, that done. done? But, but I'm like, well, you know what? That trope is something that works when it's, when you believe in the characters and the thing this movie has done an excellent job of is setting up all of these characters, even the small ones, even like grandpa who has a great comedy line at the table. Like I'm so confused. Like he's doing so what? Confused. What's yeah. happening he's now? He's got his oatmeal in front of him. I'm uh, so confused. Yeah. It was, it was it's great. okay. Grandpa. We're all like, we're all confused. Yeah, really. We, we all are, but because we buy into all of those characters, it makes all of this work. And that's why you can end on the schmaltzy you know, photo and you got Dino in the background again and all that stuff. Oh, and who doesn't love Dino? Dino could sing to me all day long and I'd be a happy woman. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Irina, what are yours for Moonstruck? So here's the funny thing. As much as this is one of my favorite movies, unless a movie gives me goosebumps, I'm not going to give it an extra large popcorn. I'm going to give it a large and and a half like maybe a large and a medium. And I'm going to say, if you don't see this movie, you're missing out on some wonderful family um, aspects and some family development. Um, Just because I'm stingy with my popcorns. Well, it's the best thing you've given so far on the show. So I knew that was coming (laughs) at some point. I'll agree with you. This is a large popcorn. And when I think of the heyday of romantic comedies from the mid eighties through really the mid nineties was really when you got the best of them, I think. And, and even back in the old continuous play days, we did a few of these and they're in the vault now. So they're not on the feed, but I've reviewed a lot of these. I'm, I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. I always like it. And this is one that, like I said, I'd seen once and I'd never gone back to, but I'm glad to have revisited it now and found it because I do think it's a gem. And as much as I was like, oh, I don't know if the chair deserved the Oscar or all that. Yeah, she probably kind of did. She was pretty good in this. And really everybody is good in this. And it is a fun movie. It's a light movie. It's 95 minutes long, really, when you cut out the credits. Totally worth your time and definitely worth revisiting for sure. So I'm going to join you in that large popcorn. I think Moonstruck is a good one to go back and revisit if you haven't watched it recently. Folks, thanks for joining us on this latest episode of Filmstrip. Of course, you can find all of our episodes at filmstrippodcast.com. There you'll find links to where you can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, all those places. Wherever you find the show, please leave us a positive review and share the show with other folks. We appreciate it. You can follow us on social media at filmstrippod. That's the the Filmstrip Twitter page. You can also look for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. And Irina, how can folks keep up with you? Uh, people can find me on iSing, um, um, pardon me, on Twitter at iSing, uh, E-Y-E-S-I-N-G, or on Instagram, um, E-Y-E dot N-E-R-D, so I dot nerd. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for joining me on this episode of Filmstrip. And folks, we'll be back again soon with another review. So until next time, for Irina, I'm Jay. You've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.
All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.